In the Church Bibles, that's page 969. And in the large print, page 1507, Matthew chapter 5. And this evening, uh, we're going to look at verses 33 uh, to 37. We've been singing about the trustworthiness of God and how we can have faith in what God says. But we know in our hearts that that's not always the case with us. Can any of you remember the first time that you ever lied? Me neither. I've been doing it as long as I can remember. You don't have to train a child to lie, do you? I don't remember being sat down by my mother and she says, right Steve, This is how you lie. I do remember, on the other hand, my mother sitting me down and telling me off for lying a number of times. Lying is one of the ways, I think, that shows how we're born with a sin nature. We we just know, as soon as we can talk, really, how to lie. It's a natural thing for us to do. And what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount tonight is that Jesus is going to tell us that our lying is worse than we think. Things that we perhaps don't think about as lying really are lies. And the purpose of lying almost always is to make ourselves look good. The heart issue behind lying is the idol of our reputation. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see, our words, what comes out of our mouth, mirrors what is in our hearts. And the way that the Pharisees used their words showed that their hearts were where the problem lay. And remember, this point is part of the purpose of this bit of the Sermon on the Mount, that the righteousness of God's people, of the people of his kingdom, is to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. This is all following from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. What they were doing was showing a shallow righteousness. What Jesus does throughout chapter 5 in these examples is showing us a deeper righteousness. And the reason it's deeper is it because it goes beyond the externals and goes right into the heart. The Pharisees were interpreting the Old Testament law in a superficial and external way that whittled down to something that they could do. Whereas Jesus comes and he shows the real meaning of the law and shows it's something we can never keep because it talks of our heart. And in the previous examples of murder, adultery and divorce, we have seen that the underlying problem of all of us is a heart problem. The Pharisees wanted a righteousness that they could maintain. And so they brought the law down to a level that they could accomplish externally, but forgot the heart. 
And this lack of heart righteousness, as has been seen with murder and adultery and divorce, is clearly seen in their definition of honesty. What they thought was honest. And their definition is very far from the old adage, my word is my bond. And we read of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. So let's read those words. This is uh, Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. As we come to each illustration in this section on the Sermon on the Mount... It comes as a shock, I think, to many that Jesus is showing us that we are guilty in these areas. Most people, if you knocked on their door and asked them, would say, I'm not a murderer, no. No, I've never murdered. No, I'm not an adulterer. And most people, if you knocked on their door and said, are you a liar? I mean, they'd probably, you know, send you away. But if if they understood what you were doing, they would probably say, no, I'm not a liar. And if you say, well, have you ever told a lie? And they, say, they will say, well, okay, maybe I have. You could ask them, do you class yourself as an honest person? Well, almost everybody would say, yes, I'm an honest person. I generally tell the truth. I don't deceive people. It's a surprise to us, I think, to hear Jesus show us and tell us that we are not honest. That we are, in fact, Liars. And the reason that we think ourselves as honest is because we share with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law a shallow definition of honesty. Look again at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. Now, previously in the Sermon on the Mount, in these verses where Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said, he gives a, a verse from the Old Testament. Something we can look back to and say, there's the verse that Jesus is referring to. But here, it's slightly different in the fact that there is no Old Testament verse that says exactly what Jesus says here. Rather, this is a summary of what the Old Testament law does teach about oaths and how we make oaths. The Old Testament says that we can make an oath to the Lord and in his name and that they must never be broken, but rather they must be fulfilled. So here's some examples of the kind of laws, uh, kind of um, words that the Old Testament law speaks of about oaths that Jesus here is summarising. I'll show them on the screen so you don't have to turn to them. 
Uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 in the Ten Commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guilty who misuses his name. So if someone is making an oath in the name of the Lord, which they were allowed to do, we'll see that in a moment, and they didn't fulfill their oath, it's an example of misusing the name of the Lord your God. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2, when a man takes an oath, binds himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 23 and 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of a sin. So, just some verses that summarise what Jesus is saying. So, on the one side, oaths were not to be broken, which forbids perjury, uh, forswearing, and violating oaths. And on the other side, oaths were always to be fulfilled when they are made. Now, it's important to acknowledge at this point what the purpose of oaths were in the Bible. In one sense, like divorce, they are an acknowledgement of a fallen world. Divorce was permitted because of the hardness of heart. Oaths are needed for a similar reason. They're there really for two purposes. Number one, because of the sinful tendency of people to lie. And number two, because people, because of the tendency to lie, lack trust in others. And so the purpose of an oath is to give assurance to somebody. Now this is especially true at the level of society. There are two occasions, two main occasions, when a public oath is made in a society. One we saw yesterday, a wedding. There are promises that are made to each other, but they are not just, uh, that some of those promises are legally binding. Legally binding things you have to, to promise are true. So here's the two examples, and I've copied these uh, from, in capital letters from my transcript from yesterday, because I knew, in all seriousness, if I get anything else wrong, I've got to get these bits right. So they're in capital letters. These are the two statements. I do solemnly declare that I know not of any lawful impediment why I, such and such, may not be joined in matrimony to the other person. It's an oath, isn't it? I solemnly declare, I promise that I am able to marry this person. There's nothing that stops me. No legal impediments. And there are two impediments. Either you're related or already married. And you're promising on oath Neither of those things are true. And then the other uh, promise that you have to make is, I call upon these persons here present to witness that I, such and such, do take you, the other person, to be my lawful wedded husband or wife. And in that case, you are promising everybody, but especially the state in this case, that you are freely marrying. You're not marrying Uh, with your hand behind your back and being forced. You are free to marry and you want to marry this person. You see, when we make these vows, and when they were made yesterday, 
none of us in the audience were doubting the integrity of the bride and groom. But the state needs to have assurance that the people getting married are legally able and legally willing to do so. And the reason that is because marriage is a serious commitment to make. Well, the other example is in a court of law, where you swear to tell the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Again, when you stand in court, nobody uh, necessarily is doubting your personal integrity. But the oath is made because there are plenty of people within society as a whole that have not got that same integrity as you have. And so an assurance is needed by the court that you are going to tell the truth because so many people don't. In a court, the seriousness of truth is shown by an oath being made. And it reminds the person who is about to give a testimony that they must tell the truth because it's a serious matter if they don't. And it is serious. They go to jail if they commit perjury. Well, we're going to see shortly from the context of what Jesus is saying that Christians are not forbidden to take oaths at a wedding or in court. Those oaths in society show us that oaths are taken when assurance is needed of the truth in a fallen world where the truth is not always told. In the Old Testament, oaths were expected. And we see them, in fact, in both good ways and bad ways. A good example of an oath is where Ruth made an oath to Naomi, that she won't leave Naomi, that she'll be with her and and go with her and worship the same God and such things. That was a good oath to make. But there are examples of bad oaths. If you go to judge it, don't go there now, but maybe when you go home, if you want to look at one, look at Judges chapter 11, where Jephthah makes a very foolish vow in Judges chapter 11. So we would agree with what verse 33 in Matthew chapter 5 says. It basically says, don't break oaths, but keep them. But the problem was that the Pharisees' interpretation was very shallow indeed. In order to get an idea of how they interpreted keeping an oath, it's helpful to see Jesus' rebuke of them and their dishonesty later on in Matthew's Gospel. Again, I'm going to show the words on the screen, but if you want to turn to it, it's Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 to 22. This is Jesus uh, pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees. And this is in the midst of those woes. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Notice their way with words here. So if anyone swears by the temple on its own, just the temple, well, it it meant nothing. It wasn't binding. It wasn't a proper oath. 
because it was just by the temple. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, well, well, then it was binding and you had to do what you say you would do. Or if you swore by the altar, it doesn't mean anything, but if it was by the gift of the altar, well, you had to do what you said. You see, they had different gradations of oath, some which were binding and some which meant nothing really at all. And so they would say they would do something and then they would swear by the temple or by the altar. And it was almost as if they were saying, I'll do it, but having their hands behind their backs with their fingers crossed. That's our equivalent today. If I uh, say to you, I'll do something and I'm doing this behind my back, you know that I'm not really telling the truth. It was the first century equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back. But there was a whole system of formulas that they had that were binding and non-binding. One rabbinical writing explains that if you swear by Jerusalem, then you are not bound. But if you swear while you're facing towards Jerusalem, well, then you are bound. And it's ridiculous, right? The main way of working around an oath was really not to use the name of God. That was, that was a big one. If you didn't use God's name, it wasn't necessarily binding. As an example, let's look again at Leviticus chapter 19. I'll show you on the screen. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You see, when the Pharisees read this, they would emphasize my name rather than falsely. That is, as long as they didn't swear by God's name, then they could be as false as they liked. You see, that was how they would read that verse in Leviticus. They basically wanted to get the formula correct. So long as the oath wasn't binding, they didn't have to fulfill what they said they would do. And so taking oaths became really a justification for lying, and they were misused. And they were really misused in two ways. Firstly, oaths were taken easily. That is, they could be made for any and every reason. So take, for example, uh, my my family are going out for the day and I stay in and I know that they want me to make dinner for them. And I say, I'll I'll do dinner for you at 5 p.m. And my wife might say to me, well, uh, are you sure that you're going to be able to do that? And I say... I swear by the gold of the temple that I'll make dinner by 5pm. I mean, I shouldn't have to swear that I'll make dinner by 5pm, right? It should just be done, yes? It's a silly reason to make an oath. But they were making it for any and every reason. There are no rules for when you could make an oath and for what reason you could make an oath. And so oaths were made flippantly, And for no good reason at all. So firstly, they were easy. But secondly, they were evasive. That is, they had non-binding and binding oaths. And so if they didn't feel like doing something, they would evade it. So if I promised to make dinner by 5pm, I would just swear I'll do it by the temple rather than by the gold of the temple. Or I'll do it while facing away from Jerusalem. And so when my family come home expecting dinner at 5, it's not there and I can say, well, I wasn't facing Jerusalem when I made the oath. So you can be hungry. You see, the standard for honesty was low. They say, you're only dishonest if you've broken an oath 
that contains a certain word formula. And in our society today, the same shallow definition of honesty takes place so often. Take, for example, a manifesto that a political party produces. Well, no one believes it, do they? When it's challenged, there's always an excuse for why we haven't followed and done what we said we would do. We talked last week of of marriage vows. We talked last week of how marriage vows are violated so easily. How many of you have had contracts that contain small print? Either that you've never seen, or that is so small you can't read it. And then when something goes wrong, oh, but, it, but it's, in the, it's in the small print. And really, that small print is, it was there so that you couldn't really see it or couldn't really understand it. Some contracts can be so complicated that they're never really understood, but they are understood when something goes wrong. Well, at this stage, maybe some of you feel like pretty honest people. I mean, we can't be like the Pharisees, surely. Maybe some of you don't ever make oaths. I don't do contracts. Uh, I, I, I've kept my marriage vows. Um, I'm not a political party. Uh, I don't even go to court and make an oath. I haven't really done that before. Uh, and and you, you maybe are feeling like, well, I'm, I'm still pretty honest. But it might come as a shock to you to see what Jesus has to say in his deeper definition of honesty. And that's found in verses 34 to 37. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, or for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now remember, when Jesus says, but I tell you, he's not saying the Old Testament is wrong. He is saying the interpretation by uh, being made by the religious leaders is wrong. It is not deep enough. It doesn't go to the heart. It doesn't explain what this law really means. And so Jesus begins his interpretation by saying, do not swear an oath at all. And when we look at the examples that he gives we can see that he is saying, don't swear an oath like the Pharisees did. You see, the Pharisees would swear by heaven, by Jerusalem, or even by their own head. And as long as God's name was not used, then the oath was not binding to them. Remember the key thing, they didn't want to use God's name, so it wasn't binding. But Jesus is... Talking here about the Pharisees' oaths. We'll talk in a moment about oaths in court and things like that and how we, we were able to make those as Christians. Jesus is not talking about that, and part of the reason we know he's not talking about that is because of the type of oaths he's talking about in the examples. They're all ones the Pharisees made heaven, earth, Jerusalem, head. And what Jesus is saying is whether you invoke God's name or not, it's irrelevant. Because God is part of or involved in everything you could possibly swear by. So if you swear by heaven but don't use his name, it doesn't matter. Because heaven is his throne. If you swear by the earth but don't use his name, it doesn't matter because the earth is God's footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem... Towards it or not, it doesn't matter if you invoke God's name because Jerusalem is the city of the Messiah, the great king, the son of God. 
even swearing by our own head doesn't become non-binding because God's name is not invoked, because he's even in control of every grey hair, and you can't make one grey hair black. Well, they may not have had just for men hair colouring cream in Jerusalem at this time. But they were able to dye hair, so I understand. So I'm sorry to to disappoint some people, but even dyeing your hair doesn't mean it's not grey, it's just covered. And I can say this from experience. I was getting my hair cut yesterday morning, and every time I go, I look at my hair, and I feel like they're shaving a silverback gorilla, and I can't believe what's going on. Every time I think it's more and more. And I'm reminded of this verse, that it's God. And so I thank him for my grey hair. But the big point here is that you can't say something that is non-binding because the oath is sworn upon something that doesn't invoke God's name. Because God is involved in everything, even our grey hair. And so Jesus repudiates second-class oaths which try to be a justification to lying. So this is not forbidding oaths completely. Oaths are at times required in a fallen world because of the need for reassurance that is needed to sinful humanity. Uh, One commentator says this regarding oaths that we should take. The truly good man will never need to take an oath. The truth of his sayings and the reality of his promise need no such guarantee. But the fact that oaths are necessary still sometimes is the proof that men are not good men and this is not a good world. You see, Jesus is saying here that we must be people of integrity. And we'll see that more in a moment when we look at yes and no. He's not forbidding all oaths completely. But he is saying that we need to be people who speak the truth. And because we live in a world that doesn't speak the truth, sometimes oaths are still required. And oaths are made in the Bible, even in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle, uh, we can read about, makes oaths. But in Hebrews chapter 6, we read that God himself makes an oath. In this Hebrews passage, the writer is looking back to Abraham, who was needing assurance of the promises of God. He was promised a child, and him and his wife were very old. It was, in human terms, unbelievable. But this was God speaking. And Abraham needed reassurance from God, not because God couldn't be trusted, but because the situation was just seemed so impossible. And so in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, We read, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Abraham needed the reassurance, and so God gave an oath. And we we can read about this in Hebrews. He invoked his own name to give Abraham and his heirs a very clear promise that they could very clearly trust. Not because God couldn't be trusted, but because there is nothing more reassuring than the name of God being invoked. You see, the point of the passage here is not forbidding oaths, 
As we have seen, God made an oath. Oaths are made throughout the Bible in positive waves. Rather, the point of the passage is to be so trustworthy that oaths are not necessary for us. Look again at verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the key verse. This is where the true interest of Jesus in truthfulness lies. All the time, in all of our words, everything we say, we must say what we mean, we must mean what we say. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. And I think we find this a lot harder than we may think. Here's some questions that the answers of which reveal how honest we really are. And these are challenging because they've challenged me as I've been thinking about them. So, thinking about let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have you ever exaggerated exaggerated something about yourself? You see this uh, all the time. I see this with people that run, actually. Um, when I was in America last uh, year, uh, there was somebody that wanted to go for a run with me. And uh, I said, oh, that's, that's great. I, but I said, I can, I can run far, but not fast. Uh, so I said, if you're wanting to go really fast, then uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know if I'll be able to go. And he says, well, uh, I, I do between seven and eight minute miles. And I said, well, I don't. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh, so I said, I don't mind going with you, but you have to understand, I'm, I'm not prepared to be able to do that. So uh, I'm really sorry. Anyway, we went running. He does not do <laughs> seven to eight minute miles. In fact, he couldn't keep up with me and I'm slow. So it, again, it, it's an example and we see this all the time, especially I find it with people that run. They exaggerate how fast they can run and then they're found out and look stupid when it happens. But what about you? When you tell a story about yourself, do you tell it to make yourself look better? Do you exaggerate the facts? That's dishonest. It's not simply yes or no. Have you ever pretended to know something in a conversation when you really haven't got a clue? Now, you may pretend that you know something to make yourself look more intelligent, or even perhaps in a job interview to get the job. I mean, I found this when I worked in IT all the time. And I used to, I used to commit this, actually. Do, can you fix this? Yes, of course I can, because you want the job. And so you get the work, and you're looking at it, and the first, uh, first week you're just thinking, okay, I'm trying to figure this out. That's dishonest. I even struggled with this this last week. I've been preparing to teach uh, about William Tyndale uh, and I was struggling because I had some facts about Thomas More, one of his enemies, and I had the facts written down because I heard them in a lecture, but if anyone prodded me any further than the superficial facts that I'd written out, I realised I didn't know anything about him. And so I felt that I was being dishonest by putting in a lecture things that made me sound like I know what Thomas More was like, when really, beyond what I'd heard in this one lecture, I didn't have a clue. And so I've subsequently had to get some books on Thomas More and try to study it so that I am actually telling the truth about what I know. 
Have you ever excused sin with words that are not strictly true? For example, when you say something to someone that they are are offended at, and you try and say what you really meant. Or when you're caught doing something wrong and you say, well, I was just... That's dishonest, isn't it? That is not simply yes or no. Do you promise your children something and then not deliver it? Either being somewhere with them, buying them something you said you would, or spending time with them that you promised you would. Are you honest at work with your expenses? Are you honest at work with your time? Or do you steal time off of work through browsing the internet for hours on end? If your yes is simply yes, you have agreed to work for them at the hours you agreed to work. What about joking? Some practical jokes we play on people, tricking them, can sometimes go far enough to actually be just dishonest. We have to be careful. What about our membership commitments that we make? In our church, all members have said that they will uh, do this. Oh, no, I haven't got the slide for it, so I'll read you the membership commitments. As members of the family of God, I recognize that it's spiritual unity and the necessity and value of the church meeting together regularly for worship, Bible study, the Lord's Supper, and prayer fellowship. The spiritual and material welfare of all members is my concern, encouraging me to love and to pray for each member. This is further expressed in the faithful exercise of my God-given gifts within the corporate life of the church and by my willingness to submit to those in authority over me in the Lord. All of us who are members of this church have on numerous occasions, at least since I've been here, stood here and have committed to doing those things. Are we doing them? Because if our yes is simply yes, then we must fulfill those commitments we've made to one another and to the Lord. And so, if you aren't sure about those things, then I suggest you go home and read your membership commitments. And don't be embarrassed if you haven't got them, because you've mislaid them and want to know what they are again, to email me and I'll be happy to email you with no judging whatsoever, because I also, at times, have failed in these areas. What about your commitment more generally? Do you say, do you do what you say you will do? Are you there when you say you'll be there? When you say you'll be there? What about when someone asks you what you think and you know they're not going to like what you say? Are you honest or not? These are challenging questions, aren't they? You see that it goes deeper than perhaps what we think. Now, sometimes it must be said it is wise not to speak. At all times, we need tact and sensitivity. Sometimes, perhaps, we need to send someone somewhere else. If they're asking you, do I look big in this? Perhaps, I don't know. It's a hard one, isn't it? But our trustworthiness... Our integrity should be such that when we say yes to something, people see our word as our bond, and when we say no to something, they understand that it means no. All else, Jesus says, is from the evil one. You could translate this also as all else is evil, 
But both of those work. Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus describes the devil like this. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying is of the devil. But at the same time, our hearts are evil, and what comes out of our mouth, as we saw earlier, is really what our hearts are full of. Anything, however small we may think it is, if it is not the whole truth, it is evil, and it is from the father of lies. So how then should we speak? Well, Paul's letter to the Ephesians gives us some positive words in this regard. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses, uh, verse 15, uh, we read uh, these words. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And then later on in the same chapter, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We speak the truth in love. Sometimes it may be best not to speak at all, but when we do, we do so in love. We say what we mean, we mean what we say, yes is yes, no is no, but always with the attitude of loving our neighbour. Let's not exaggerate about ourselves. Let's be honest when we don't know something. Let's not worry about our reputation. Let's not excuse our sin, but rather confess our sin. Let us keep our word to our children and our commitments to our church. Let us be honest with our time and with our expenses at work. All these things are what are expected of a citizen in God's kingdom. Well, earlier on I said if we were to do a survey, most people would say that they were honest people. What would you say now? We have seen the depths of what honesty really means. And from Ephesians, what we ought to do instead. I would be very surprised if someone said now, I am a totally honest person. And worst of all, God says that he will judge every foolish word we speak. But I want to end somewhere else. I want to tell you of two people, of a redeemed liar and of a saviour who dies for liars. The redeemed liar is Peter. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ and he was the most outspoken in his declaration of commitment to following Jesus. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 14 and verse 29, Peter boldly proclaims, Even if all fall away, I will follow you. But when Jesus was arrested and the disciples ran in fear, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied that he even knew him. And not only did he lie in this regard, but Mark chapter 14 and verse 71 says that he began to call down curses and he swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. He swore. He made an oath. He called down a curse saying he didn't know Jesus. He lied under oath about knowing Jesus and he had lied to Jesus about his commitment to him. 
No wonder after this Peter broke down and wept. But Peter was forgiven by Jesus and he was reinstated. And in Acts chapter 2, we read that he was among the disciples who received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, Peter raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And that same voice that called curses down from heaven and denied his Lord preached a powerful sermon declaring the truth about Jesus Christ. Peter was forgiven of his dishonesty and given words to proclaim the message. And Jesus can do for you what he did for Peter. He forgives your sins and he gives you the Holy Spirit who gives us better words than the lies that have come forth from our mouths previously. And the reason he does this is because he died in the place of liars. And that same man, Peter, writes these words about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Unlike us, Jesus never lied. He was always honest. When he said yes, he meant yes. When he said no, he meant no. And he died on the cross in our place as our substitute to exchange places with liars. With you and with me. And by the Spirit's power, we can live differently. An honest person is a counter-cultural person, aren't they? And Christians in God's kingdom are counter-cultural people. And so let us be those countercultural people who live the truth we proclaim by being truthful people. Let us not worship the idol of making ourselves look good by being dishonest, but rather use those words to proclaim the truth about Jesus who saves sinners. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to end with some words that uh, D.A. Carson says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Christians claim to have the truth and to follow him who is the truth. In our conversations, therefore, truth must be our watchword. Well, let us close with singing the truth. But first of all, we're going to sing in praise to God. Because together as a congregation,